Grace, mercy, and peace to you. From God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, last week we watched a, a clip of Frog the Rooster. Remember, he became an online, really online famous when his family posted a video of him that went viral a few years ago. It caught Frog in his daily run down the drive to meet his human sister every day when she was dropped off by the school bus. Don't worry, nothing happened to Frog that I know of. He's okay. But there was this other rooster in the news last week, and the news uh, wasn't so good. This rooster was a victim of a very bad neighbor with a whole load of bad excuses. The Florida resident spoke out after being charged with a felony and spending 30 days in jail over the death of Big Roo, his, his neighbor's pet rooster. He still claims it was self-defense. I was defending myself, you know, he said. I was fearing for my safety, and the chicken died. I didn't know how to give it. I didn't know to give it a 21-gun salute, CPR, mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, you know, or call a chicken ambulance. I just checked my mail, and I hear this noise, bam, bam, bam. I turn around, and there's this chicken out there in the street. I said, oh, boy, here we go. I turn around, walk back to my place, and bam, 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 now the chicken's in my yard. And now its neck flares up. As the angry rooster continued to stalk him, the man said he simply tried to defend himself. So I pick up a stick in my yard, and I, and I try to hit it. But the chicken is jumping up at me, and I accidentally knocked it in the head, you know? Called a lucky shot, whatever. He says he left the rooster at the side of the road. You can almost hear the repentance in his voice. Almost. Four children who witnessed the assault described a much more brutal version. When his neighbor returned home to discover his beloved pet was deceased, he called animal control, who charged the murderous neighbor with aggravated animal cruelty. The accused said he and his neighbor actually got into a confrontation over it in his front yard. He says, he's yelling and screaming in my yard, and next thing you know, he calls the chicken police on me. Unless you're beginning to think that he maybe really is an innocent victim of a deranged rooster and beyond redemption, he finished telling his side of the story like this. Chickens die every day, people, at churches, Popeyes, and Kentucky Fried Chicken. Really? Oh, boy. What a good neighbor looks like. That's our theme this morning, and that's not him. In our gospel lesson, Jesus is approached by a lawyer today, not a poultry criminal defense attorney like this guy probably needed. This one's a lawyer in the sense that he was an expert in religious law, a teacher of the law, Moses' law, the Torah. Luke says that his purpose was to put Jesus to the test, and so we know that he was most likely an opponent of Jesus, or at the very least, uh, a skeptic. Jesus drew opposition like that from religious leaders everywhere he went, men just like this. He wanted to gain the upper hand on our Lord, and so he asked Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, if you were here last week or you tuned in last week and heard about the return of the the 72 followers Jesus had sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God was near. You, you remember their excitement. Many of their listeners had taken their words to heart, and many of them had even been healed. They were so successful and so excited that Jesus put it all into a powerful image. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Then he offered up this prayer. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. This man was one of those wise and learned. The story follows right on the heels of that celebration, and this expert in the law wanted to make the point that more was required for eternal life than just hearing and believing. 
from his viewpoint, salvation was all about keeping the law. And from his viewpoint, it wasn't open for discussion. Well, knowing what was in his heart, Jesus prods him to reveal it. He says, what is it? What is written in the law? And how do you read it? This man was, after all, the local expert, and he proves it by quoting from it. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, that's right. Do this. Literally, he said, keep on doing this, and you will live. Well, he did know the law. He discovered the two commandments that, that summarize all the law. The Torah, according to Jesus, is all about God's love. Now, he didn't destroy Adam and Eve when they disobeyed him, did he? He clothed them. And even though there was a price to pay, they were going to have to move out of the garden. He saw to it that they would survive. He even promised them a, a savior one day. He didn't destroy his people when they turned away from him in the wilderness, not long after he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. There was a steep price to pay, but God never forgot them. He sustained them in their wilderness wanderings for over 40 years. And he, through Moses, promised them another rescuer, a savior uh, Moses was only a foreshadowing of. He gave them strict worship requirements, but those requirements would point them to that same savior, Jesus, who would one day become the once and for all sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Jesus saw love in God's law. The lawyer only saw a list of requirements to earn God's favor. Now, the lawyer had the right answer, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor, but he didn't really understand what that meant. The law was given to show us our sin and therefore our need for a savior. The apostle Paul, who was a former Pharisee, a teacher of the law himself, came out of that same works righteousness school. But after coming to faith in Jesus, he would write in his letter to the Christians at Galatia, does this mean that the law is against God's promises? Never. That would be true only if the law could make us right with God. But God did not give a law that can bring life. Instead, the scripture showed that the whole world is bound by sin. This was so the promise would be given through faith to people who believe in Jesus Christ. Before this faith came, we were all held prisoners by the law. We had no freedom until God showed us the way of faith that was coming. In other words, the law was our guardian leading us to Christ so that we would be made right with God through faith. Now the way of faith, now the way of faith has come, and we no longer live under a guardian. You were all baptized into Christ, and so you were all clothed with Christ. That means you're all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians chapter 3. Faith in Jesus, our Savior, is God's free gift to us. Even though we don't deserve it, it's ours by grace, his undeserved love. Still, Jesus spoke as if the law ended the matter, just like that man believed. But the conversation was just getting started. The man already knew that keeping the law wasn't that simple, even for someone who worked at it day and night like he did. And so he's thrown off balance a little, and he tries to justify his first point that he deserves eternal life by virtue of his own righteousness. He challenges Jesus by asking for a definition, right? He's, okay, so who is my neighbor? Well, that was the question of the day, wasn't it? That was really at the heart of the story Jesus is going to tell, especially since his Sermon on the Mount, where he preached, you have heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, back in those days, no self-respecting Jew would ever consider loving or, or even praying for a Gentile, a non-Jew, let alone an enemy like the despised Samaritans. 
So it was uh, so outside the box thinking that, that it wouldn't even have been considered. And so Jesus tells a story, a story that this lawyer, this teacher of the law needed to hear, one that we need to hear every so often too to remind us. It was about a man who was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Now everybody there listening to this story that day knew the road he was talking about. 17 miles of lonely, winding highway lined with rocks and caves that made perfect hiding places for the bad guys. Even after Jesus' day, it continued to be infested with bandits. As it turns out, this traveler's number comes up. He's attacked, robbed of everything he has, including his clothes, and he's beaten nearly to death. Now, the unnamed man, uh, likely a, a Jew by his route, is just left lying there in the dust in the hot sun, stripped and bleeding, just waiting for it to all be over. The lawyer may have expected this man would turn out to be his neighbor, a good Jewish man traveling a Jewish road. The road is lonely, but it's not totally deserted that day. A priest comes along, probably off from his duties at the temple. And when he sees the man, he crosses to the opposite side of the road and passes him by. So to a Levite, a man from the tribe of Jews who were devoted to religious service, he saw him as well, and he passed by on the other side. Now, if it weren't for bad luck, this poor traveler would have no luck at all. Maybe the priest and the Levite both thought they had a good reason. Maybe it was a trap. Maybe they worried that the man was dead and they didn't want to risk contamination by becoming ritually unclean by touching a body. That would have kept them from their, their priestly duties at the temple. Maybe they figured he looked too far gone to be helped. Maybe they just didn't want to get involved. Jesus doesn't say. To those listening, they might have anticipated that the story would now move from the preoccupied priest and the uncaring Levite uh, to a kinder, caring layman, maybe. A regular, you know, working stiff Israelite. They expected that this story, after it was all done, was going to be about the value of good works. But Jesus throws them a curve when the story takes an unexpected turn. There is a third man who comes along, but he's not an Israelite of any kind. He's one of those despised Samaritans, and he stops to help. You know, it's hard to put ourselves in, in the place of Jesus' listeners, though. You know, there was absolutely no love loss between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, the Samaritans had their own Torah. They had their own version of the temple where they offered their own sacrifices. They were cursed publicly in the synagogues with a prayer that they might have no part in the resurrection. They were never accepted as converts, and to eat their food would have been as bad as a Jew eating a ham sandwich. The idea that Jesus would have made the one person in the story who showed love a Samaritan would have been nothing less than sensational. And by the way, the feeling was mutual. The Samaritans had refused the opportunity for Jesus to visit them on his way to Jerusalem simply because he was on his way to Jerusalem. Their claim to be descendants from the northern tribes who managed to uh, survive the Assyrian conquest and the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC had always been soundly rejected by the Jews in the south. The Israelites always denied that they were even Jews at all. Even the phrase, you know, good Samaritan would have been considered a laughable oxymoron. So the Samaritan sees this man lying along the road and he has compassion on him and at no small expense to himself. He treats his wounds as best he can using his own wine and his own oil, uh, lifts him on his own mount and gives him to, takes him to an inn where he can rest and recuperate on the Samaritan's dime. Where others had passed the bleeding man by, 
had run away from their chance to show a little godly compassion, the Samaritan ran right into the building burning, the burning building, so to speak, uh, without even counting the cost. And it did cost him. You now he bandaged the wounds of his victim. Uh, he, he, an unexpected outlay. He puts the injured man on his donkey, giving up his transportation, an unexpected inconvenience. He takes the poor man to an inn where he can rest up and heal. An unexpected detour. He spends the night treating him. An unexpected delay. He gives the innkeeper the money to continue the care. An unexpected expense. And to top it off, he promises to pay whatever more his care might end up costing. An unexpected commitment. What made him different? Compassion. Compassion or the lack of it is what moves some people to become good Samaritans and others to be passers-by. And compassion doesn't stop to count the costs. The story left people asking themselves, was there ever such a, a Samaritan? Where would a Samaritan ever obtain such perfect love? Well, the answer is the same for everyone, from God. God's grace taught us compassion. Jesus finishes his story by asking, so of all three men who might have helped, which one turned out to be this man's neighbor? And the lawyer answers correctly, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus tells him, now you go and do likewise. It turns out that keeping the law looks a lot like love. Now, I don't know how likely it is that many of us here will ever come across a stranger alongside the road, beaten, bleeding, and dying, or have a chance to take a bullet for someone, or stop to help someone at the scene of, a, of an accident, or any of the other uh, amazing good Samaritan scenarios we hear about in the, in the news from time to time. Maybe for you, it'll just be having the opportunity to call your neighbor and, and, and tell him his pet rooster got loose again. Or the, you know, the one that wakes you up every morning before the sun does. Or just to take time or really make time in our busy day to, to stop and help a stranger. You know, what to do in those situations is hard to argue, isn't it? Even if it goes against our natural instincts and our sinful natures. By God's grace, I hope that if it ever does happen to you, that you'll You'll do the right thing just because it is the right thing. Because everyone is our neighbor. Because God has already shown us what love does. But we were still sinners. He sent his own son to suffer and die on a cross to take away our sins. But we were still sinners. He gave us new life and, and, and a new birth through his word and sacraments. But we were still sinners. He sent his Holy Spirit to take up residence in our sinful hearts and fill them with God's love. Now he's shown us how far that love should go in return, that it's a love without boundaries, without limits. You know, the world is filled with victims, but it's way short on good Samaritans. Our main focus is rightly on the next life, but if we can leave this one just a little better by the acts of kindness we do when we, you know, when we move on than it was before we came, then God will be glorified and the world will be blessed. We've all found ourselves in situations that left us longing for even the, the tiniest bit of hope, the tiniest bit of light, even a night light maybe at the end of the tunnel. The story's really asking, you know, what if the light at the end of someone's tunnel is supposed to be you? Plugged into Jesus, you can turn a night light of hope into a floodlight. Now Jesus says, go and do likewise. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. 
Amen.